we are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Nick Briggs, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club the podcast in which we undertake the uplifting task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because planes, uplift, etc. Yeah, exactly. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally uplifting three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, <clears throat> pardon me, I had to clear my throat there. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast our good friend, formerly of the Talking Who to You podcast and currently of the Talking Trek to You podcast, J.G. McQuarrie. Hello, J.G. Hello. Uh, it's all right. Lots of people choke when they get to my name. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, now I can't cut that. Oh, well, it's fine. We leave that stuff in anyway. So, if you like what you're hearing, this quality recording that you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive among other possible goodies, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you store them in a long decommissioned Concord plane buried millions of years ago under an airport... Boy, that was a long one. That's what she said. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Danglesdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Somnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Milton Welling, Louise Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you. I cannot do those all in one breath anymore. And I'm very happy about that. I really am. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com, Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We finish our discussion of Peter Davison's first season as the Doctor as we discuss Peter Grimwade's novelization of <sighs> Time Flight. <laughs> Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Time Flight, adapted by Peter Grimway from a script that aired from 322.82 to 330.82, published by Target Books in April 1983. As of this recording in April 2023, this title is out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. And it just occurs to me, this was published exactly 40 years ago. Goodness. Okay. Yeah, I don't think we've hit the publication date quite so closely as that before, but never mind. And of all things to hit it on, this one. Now, we haven't really talked that much about Peter Grimwade before, except to mention the hell he put his actors through as director of Earthshock, and how he soon stopped speaking to John Nathan Turner, as indeed so many people did. 
I don't think we mentioned he also directed Kinda, though. Mm -hmm. He also directed Full Circle and Legopolis. So he was not inexperienced with Doctor Who, uh, despite all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> In fact, Grim Wade had been working on the show on and off as a production assistant since John Pertwee's first story, Spearhead from Space, in 1970. He was well known enough to the actors he worked with that Tom Baker ad-libbed his name in Robots of Death for Grimwade's Syndrome, the mental illness giving people an unreasoning fear of robots, just as his actors developed an unreasoning fear of directors after he got through them. Although he would never direct the show again after Earthshock, he would contribute two more stories to the show, both of which he would novelize. So, if you don't like his prose here, buckle up, because we have two more of these. Grim Wade later wrote and directed something called The Comeuppance of Captain Cat in 1986 for the ITV children's drama series Dramarama, which he would later admit was based on his experience working on Doctor Who. Because he will create a new companion in one of his upcoming stories, he gave Target permission for another author to write a book for the range about that character, and in fact, we are going to read that book, unfortunately. But they offered him a chance to write an original novel for them, which he titled, confusingly enough, Robot, <laughs> and which is full of Doctor Who references. Go figure. He unfortunately died of leukemia in 1990 at the age of 47. But fortunately, he won't hear this podcast, so he won't hear how much we're going to talk about time flight. The story may have the distinction for being the only story that every member of the main cast in the Peter Davison era hated. Matthew Waterhouse thought it was a terrible story, so despite appearing briefly in it to fulfill his contract and to cover his departure in the previous story, he thought it was best that he was leaving when he did. Peter Davison said the story was what aided in his discussion to leave after three seasons. Sarah Sutton hated it because she couldn't understand what was going on, even though she's a prime mover in the story. And Janet Fielding said in the DVD commentary that she didn't remember it being so bad until she rewatched it. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, she blocked the memory out. <laughs> <laughs> while even Davison claimed the script was good, and while Grim Wade got his dream to ride on Concord fulfilled as a result of the story, because that's the main reason he did the story, the thing that doomed it was the budget. The series had spent all of its money by the time the story went before the cameras, so the only location filming was at Heathrow. Prehistoric Earth is done in the studio, and it both looks and sounds like it. The plasmatons were contracted to an outside company, who neglected to bear in mind that the actors inside needed to be able to see out of the costumes. God. Yeah, they didn't really make uh, eye holes for them. As a result, they essentially stay in place in the least menacing way possible. They just kind of bob back and forth a little bit, and not much even then. Add to this the quote-unquote shock reveal of the Master, under what may be the most racist makeup we've seen in the show since the Celestial Toymaker. Actually, that's not true. The most racist makeup we've seen since the Talons of Wing Chiang. <laughs> And it's pretty clear why this story is poorly regarded. But as always, the question for us is, is the book really any better? He said, knowing what the answer was already. <laughs> so, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? JG, would you be willing to do the honors for us? I mean, I'm willing to try, but the idea of uh, anything dramatic coming out of time flight, frankly, seems like a stretch. Uh, but, That's you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go for you. <laughs> I think the typos will be pretty dramatic. Oh, yes. <laughs> the Doctor and his companions arrive on Tegan's home planet at a moment of crisis. The Concord aeroplane has inexplicably vanished while in flight. The Doctor, Tegan and Nyssa, together with the TARDIS, that makes it sound like a person, join the crew of a second Concord that sets out to simulate the fateful journey of the missing supersonic jet. Coming back to Earth is not the return to normality that the rescue team might reasonably have expected. Seeing is believing, people say. Doctor and his friends are beginning to realize that it just isn't as simple as that. No kidding. 
Wow. Apart from the mention of Concord, that description could probably be applied to any Earthbound story. Well, that and the mention of the Companions, but... I, I hope you're not suggesting there's something generic about this. That would be terrible. Oh, no, I wouldn't suggest that at all, because this is very far from generic, unfortunately. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm giving away everything, aren't I? I'm telegraphing my entire review. Dalton, what was your first impression of this book when you got it? <laughs> I like the design of, of Concord Jets, so it was kind of nice to see the underside of that one on the cover. Interesting kind of perspective. Peter Davison doing his best pretty boy smile. Yeah, the, <laughs> the story from the back cover was not very exciting for me it didn't seem like it was going to be much fun and once i started reading it it was not much fun and kind of stupid and <laughs> the master's back woo <laughs> that's the most excited reaction i've ever heard to the master coming back in this story isn't it I know. And for somebody who hasn't ever seen the story to have this reaction based on the book alone, that's telling. <sighs> yeah. Oof. Goodness. JG, in our case, we have to talk about our first impression when we saw the story and when we read the book. So I assume you saw the story first, the same way I did? Uh, yeah, so I saw this when it was broadcast contemporaneously in the 80s. I own the book. It's in a cardboard box somewhere in a cupboard behind me at the moment. So I remember I bought Target books very randomly when I was a, a, a young time tot. And, I, you know, I, it was just like whatever's in the bookshop. I wasn't going in order. I wasn't going in doctors. I wasn't going in anything. So at some point during the 80s, I, I picked a copy of this up. What a smart little kid I was. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> I mean, I remember this story going out mostly because it's the story that follows Earthshock. And, uh, you know, for all the problems that that show has and for all that you might argue that um, Adric's death is maybe not the worst thing that's ever happened to the show, it's still memorable. It still sticks in the memory. So, like, you know, you're really excited to see what's going to happen next. And what happens next is time flight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, thanks, thanks for that, guys. You really, uh, really nailed that end of season drama there. It's so bad. I've mentioned, I think, on this podcast before. Like, I'm a big fan of the redemptive reading. I'm a big fan of trying to get quality out of uh, something which is maybe not well regarded or which could be seen from a different perspective or or whatever else it is. I mean, I just can't do it. It's just, I mean, one compliment I will absolutely pay the book is that it absolutely captures the essence of time flight. It really, does it really does. does. It really does. <laughs> Probably better than just about any other book that I've seen. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I had the same impression. I remember seeing this originally when we got it in syndication after Earthshock. Yeah, because we were watching them on weeknights. So I would have seen episode one of this the very night after seeing Adric's death, which I already had ruined for me, so that was no surprise. But it was very affecting. And then you come out of it, and you come straight to episode one. They discuss it for maybe about two minutes, and then it's over. And then he shows up again later, and he's gone again. So it's like, um <clears throat> I guess we need to jump right into this because you've mentioned and I've mentioned that this follows on from Earthshock, which is regarded, rightly or wrongly, as the best Cyberman story that the classic series produced. Your mileage may vary. My, my mileage varies. Okay, <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested to hear why it is you don't like it or have issues with it. Because you're right, coming off of that one, even if you don't like it, you're still falling into a hole when you get this one. But it starts... Oh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. No, you can just stop there. It starts... Oh, <laughs> yes. that's, that's fine, you've set it up. <laughs> yeah, come to think of it. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave all this in, Dalton, because people need to know just how wretched this is. Because here's the thing. On screen, it also starts with the TARDIS crew really, really briefly mourning Adric's death. And then they go on. Mm -hmm. Here, if possible, 
it's shorter. And I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> Grim Wade seems more interested in moving on than the TARDIS crew does. Because we're told Adric failed to keep the freighter from crashing into Earth, but we're not told when. Which is bound to be confusing to those two or three people reading this book who haven't first read Earthshock, which they couldn't do anyway at the time, because this book came out first. Oh, God. Yeah, and Grimwade directed that story, so you would think he would have a vested interest in referencing it. But no, there's even some really interesting bits that could be done with it, such as um, we had Jim Sangster on last time, and his theory was that Adric was always fated to die, that it's a fixed point in time. So the Doctor's anger here at being unable to go back in time and save Adric actually makes even more sense. Mm -hmm. But we're just told that. We're just told he's angry about it, and we're not told why. And then we're off to the Grand Exhibition, or whatever it is we're going to, and it doesn't last for long because we instead get this story. Oh, sorry. Okay, I kind of went off on a rant already. So <laughs> let me throw the question to you that I would normally throw. What do we actually like about this book? Not very much. There's not very much redeeming quality about it. And we're talking about Earthshock, but I think part of it for me too is, yeah, the emotional letdown of this book after Earthshock, this has nothing in it of any kind of emotional weight, nothing that really makes me care much about anything that's going on. So it seems pointless after Earthshock. If anything, this should have come before Earthshock. Yeah, if it had to come at all. <laughs> yeah. Earthshock seemed like the natural progression, the ending of a season of the show that would have given the audience time to kind of reckon with Adric's death. It would have felt right to have that be kind of the end of a series. But then shoehorning this in and... and like, like I said earlier, like the master, that's supposed to be something that is surprising and shocking and ooh, but like, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care. Because even before I realized it was the master when it was still Khaled or Khaled. TJ Khaled. <laughs> that was a character that was like, okay, what's this idiot up to? Like, I don't care about this. And then when it's revealed that it's the master, I still don't care i still have no interest in what he's trying to do because it doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense why any of this is happening mm -hmm. yeah it really doesn't and i think that's kind of the biggest problem with the story because it's meant to be the triumphant return of the master and instead it's like oh it's the master after probably the most confusing and I mean the most confusing disguise that this man has ever worn. Now, obviously, there's going to be a future story where he's just literally hanging out in the middle of a cornfield in a scarecrow outfit. Gosh. But by that point, it's been normalized. It's mm. like reading another report of Trump saying something awful. You're like, oh, yeah. By that point, you don't care. Here, though, it's like... um why jg what was your reaction to the master returning way back when and this time oh god right <laughs> 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 firstly there's never been a dramatic return of the master in the classic series it's never dramatic it's never interesting you could make a case for professor yana in the new series but like the old series there's no real sense that when the master comes back it's dramatic. And they keep hitting that note. Like, I mean, at least in the John Pertwee era, you know, there's a season where he's in literally every story. So it's, there's no sense in playing it for surprise. So he's just like the arch enemy. He's very arch and very enemy-ish. <laughs> and he just kind of gets on with it, and that's fine. But this era seems determined to play with this idea that every time he comes back, it's going to be some kind of exciting reveal. I mean, there's a lot of things that this book gets wrong 
and and Tony, like you've mentioned, the, the unbelievably stupid and brief kind of grieving over Edric's death and all the rest of it. One of the things this book really could have got right is providing any kind of explanation for how the master survived Castrovalva. It doesn't need to be a lot. It could just be like a line. Oh, I had my dimensional stabilizer in my pocket and it interfered with the collapsing city, so I escaped. Ha 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 ha. Like just any kind of fig leaf to try and cover up the massive dislike it's just it's so kind of emblematic of how little care has gone into this that they couldn't even be bothered to write a line in i get that he didn't write castrovalva of course that's, that's fine but that kind of lack of care just runs all the way through this book so i mean i didn't care about the master returning in 1982 i don't care about the master returning now i don't <laughs> i didn't care about the racist caricature in 1982 i don't care about the racist caricature now it's just all so <laughs> Futile. What's the point in any of this? Yeah, the whole thing of, so you did escape from Castor Valva is the Doctor Who equivalent of somehow Palpatine returned. <laughs> yeah, it's got exactly. that same sort of <laughs> useless lack of explanation. Mm-hmm. And you're right. A Grimwade could have done something with this. And for that matter, he could have explained why it is that, one, the Master is in disguise to begin with, and two... He's maintaining the disguise when no one else is around to see him. (laughs) He's just sitting in a sanctum with this mask on. Well, it turns out it's a plasmaton, but God, I don't even know why that's going on in this book. He's got this mask on, and he's doing this ridiculous character, but he's just doing it for himself. Look, he's a method actor, he's committing to his part, you know, he's really invested a lot in this, and so he's going to play it to the hilt. I think that's the only solution that we can come up with, plausibly. Yeah, Yeah, there's there's some brief little mention that Grimwade puts in that the disguise itself is a function of the plasmatons, so apparently he's taking it for a test drive, I guess to see whether or not he's going to be able to use it for disguising himself when he finally gets that thing or whatever it is into the middle of his TARDIS, because at this point I really don't care. But why do it while you're alone unless you're simply nuttier than squirrel shit? Mm-hmm. Who is he supposed to be hiding his appearance from other than the doctor? Yeah. So why does it matter if anyone knows what he looks like? <laughs> exactly. And the doctor in particular in the story is carrying the idiot ball something fierce. Because, first of all, he thinks it's psychotronics or whatever, and it turns out he's kind of right on that score, but it makes him look stupid to say it. But then, he doesn't realize it's the Master. And we get no indication in this book that he ever thinks it's the Master. He honestly thinks that this is some sort of racist mystic called Khalid who somehow is using the dark forces of the universe to do whatever it is the fuck he's doing and Grimway doesn't even throw the doctor that bone of there was something awfully familiar about him no not a thing not a biscuit (laughs) okay the plot what what exactly is he doing does anyone know I mean, is that a rhetorical question? Because I don't think that's what anybody can answer. <laughs> it's unnecessarily confusing. I mean, we could probably map it out and figure out exactly what happened. His escape from Castrovalva somehow damaged the TARDIS. He ends up in prehistoric Earth. So did the Xerophon. He decides to try to use the Xerophon core after killing a few of the people that come out of it. And somehow they've become a gestalt mine because it's easier to travel that way. It does save on train fares. I guess it does, but oh, God. The thing is, like again, it's so symptomatic of how lazy this is because there's like little details that if you want to kind of fanwank your way through it, you can do. Like for example, that idea that the masters crashed millions and millions of years ago on Earth. If you wanted to, you could tie that to Castrovalva because the whole point was that the, you know in the first two episodes the TARDIS is rushing back 
in time. So it's traveling millions and million years back in time. So presumably Castrovalvo was also in the past and the master escaped from Castrovalvo. So he's still in the past and then he crashed on Earth. Like if you want to, you could draw a line between those two events. Nobody has put that much thought into it. And it keeps coming back to this just extreme sort of laziness. Like nobody cares and i think one of the things that the book suffers from is that peter grimwade is a really flat writer there's no spark to the text so even although i think it's fair to say time flight the television story is not the most well-regarded script that the classic series has ever put together like if you had a i mean i don't want to keep just using like terence dix or ian martyr or malcolm hulk as examples but if you had somebody who could write text at a bit of a clip the plot would still be a lot of old bollocks there's nothing you can do about that because it mm-hmm. is but you could get like a little bit of an adventure yarn out of it when you're stranded in the past and there's a weird alien that people don't understand and mind control and all this kind of stuff and you know a big conflict between the doctor and the master not that there really is ever a big conflict between the doctor and the master but we'll <laughs> we'll get to that and you know you you could maybe like manage to string a decent adventure yarn out of that but that's not what this is it's just so flatten the page like the only time there's any kind of spark of interest is where peter grimwade is like describing the play and he seems he seems to love mm-hmm. typing out golf victor foxtrot and captain Aww. and like all those kind of, like he's really kind of invested in the mechanisms of how this plane works and and all the rest of it. it's the only bit that he seems to care about like it's lovely that he got a ride on concord out of it good for him he got to you know fulfill one of his life's wishes but as a result we have to put up with this load of old shite <laughs> yeah agreed and i noticed that too that everything having to do with concord and airplanes and such he's there he's into it but as soon as we get into the time travel stuff and as soon as we get into the master's plan whatever it is it just all goes to bollocks it's ridiculously bad i wish there were just a little bit more to it because This is probably the worst of his three stories, I would say. I have my own troubles with Modern Undead, but at least that one, uh, you can kind of have fun with it, even though it, and spoiler alert, Dalton, (laughs) he is the one responsible for the unit controversy. Okay. But I'm only calling him that because he's the writer behind the story, because equally responsible for the unit dating controversy are John Nathan Turner, who should have known better but didn't, Eric Sayward, who probably should have caught it but didn't, and Ian Levine, who was supposed to be consultant for the show at this point and supposedly a repository of knowledge, but isn't. But at least that story is kind of fun. I have to, I have to very briefly cut in there. Like, everything you said there is true, but there's one name you missed off that list, which is Robert Holmes, because Pyramids of Mars also kicked off the unit dating controversy as oh. well, because Sarah says she's from 1980. So you're right about all of that, but I have to include Robert Holmes in that list as well because of Pyramids of Mars. That's true. That's true. I'm sorry. I'm a pedantic fan. I couldn't not say it. I apologize. Oh, no. no, no, no. I I get that. But there was not a story up to that point that contradicted that. Mm. As soon as he stabbed it into 1980, it kind of went with all the previous unit stories that were always kind of set 30 minutes into the future, or whatever the phrase is. So that kind of still works. But as soon as we get to Grimwade's next story, suddenly another date comes into play that completely contradicts that, and you got that problem but you know the premise is that the story is still yeah you can enjoy it at least planet of fire i actually kind of like but mainly because of its parts and not because of its story Uh, oh and the shorts don't forget the shorts oh yeah the shorts how could we forget the shorts dalton you've gotten into the habit of watching the televised stories after we've read these books Mm -hmm. yeah just keep that in mind for you know a couple years from now the shorts. <laughs> the shorts. <laughs> the shorts. Like, like clothing item shorts? Clothing oh, yeah. item shorts. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Just about everybody <laughs> in that story is in a state of undress of some sort or other, including okay. the doctor to a limited degree. <laughs> oh, my God. I actually like the shorts quite a bit. 
But <laughs> to get back to this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Grimboy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Especially, and we're going back to missed opportunities. The bits with Nyssa. Because we have talked on this show about how every time someone talks about a tragedy going on in their lives, whenever Tegan mentions Auntie Vanessa, Nyssa should be like, oh, that's such a shame. By the way, I lost my entire world and my entire solar system and my dad and my stepmom. And here, the bit that actually would cross-connect to that is taken out by Grimwade. It's not in there. He's got Adric, because that has to be in there. The whole bit of Adric coming back as a ghost, and he's got his badge on, and then he disappears. <laughs> but then, we just get a mention of them running into... In fact, I need to double-check this and make sure it's in my notes, and I don't want to go back into the book because I, I just don't want to touch it again. Does he even mention Melker? Yeah, Melker gets mentioned. But just, like, I mean, it could not be more offhanded. Yeah. Literally just a mention and the Terraleptal. That whole sequence has gotten rid of in a sentence. Not Nissa's reaction to it, which is still less than it should be, because she essentially says, this in another form killed my father. What is it? Melka. What comes from it killed my father. I don't believe in you. That's all we get. That's her only reaction. And when she does see the master later on, no reaction. There could even have been something along the lines, and I know I'm going on on a rant and I apologize. It's lack of coffee. It's very early in the morning for me. There could have been something about her being used by the Xerophon because they sense her antipathy towards the master. He could have used that. He could have said the reason why they're using Nyssa as a vessel is because they realize she doesn't like the Master, and that could have given us a nice cross-connect. I mean, it still would have been shit, but it would have been better. But no, <laughs> she just has the sudden ability to connect with alien gestalt entities, and we never hear of it again. Ever. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to shut up for now, and I'm going to let you all find things that you uh, want to say about this. Other things we like or dislike. <laughs> thing I like about this book is I'll never have to read it again. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's a line in this book, which is also in the broadcast version as well, which is that line about, you know, focus on anything, uh, your family, fish and chips. And I vividly yes. remember reading that line back in the 80s. For some reason, it's literally the only bit of this book I had any recollection of reading it again now. <laughs> don't know why that's <laughs> stuck in my head. It's so weirdly prosaic. I mean, I get what it's going for and all the rest of it, but it's just... I don't know. It's for some reason that's stuck in my head, and it's just—I don't know. It says something that that's that's the closest we could get to memorable. Maybe that's what the doctor was referring to in the last story when he was referencing a well-prepared meal. Well, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Which yeah. isn't in the book. I'm kind of curious. I want to ask Dalton a question, if I may. Um, yes. So you're going through the book sequentially, and I don't know if you've have you watched more or less every story that you've read the book of now? No, I only started doing that probably within the past year. Okay. So I've seen maybe Tom Baker's last season and all of Peter Davison's first season. All right, so that, wor that works and, perfectly because that, that, yeah. that feeds into my question. So what I want to know is, what do you think of Nyssa? Because I don't know that there's ever been a companion in Doctor Who who's been quite as wasted as Nyssa. And it's really interesting to have somebody's kind of perspective coming from it fresh rather than sort of burdened by, you know, 40 years of expectations and big finish and, and you know, <laughs> who's it's and what's it's and all the rest of it. So I'm just really curious how you find Nyssa has come across in print. There are some stories where she comes across really strong and some where she is super flat and forgettable. And it seems much like this story, pointless to have her there. Her characterization... <laughs> from the books is kind of all over the place from what I've seen on TV. It's a little more consistent. 
I, I've said this before that a lot of the stuff with Nissa feels like there's too many companions. There's too much going on. So she just kind of gets relegated to the background or she ends up doing something that the doctor could do, but you know, the doctor's already doing something else. So he makes her do it. Who, who was it? Was it Jim that was not a big fan of Nissa? Um, I think so. I think so. so. And, you know, I, I try to have my own opinions about all of these things, but yeah, she doesn't have a lot of personality to me. She's just kind of there. And I want there to be something more to go on with her because as you said, like her background story, what she has going on on an emotional level is really interesting and deep and could be something used for good storytelling. But instead, a lot of times she's just relegated to the background. She's just kind of filled in where anybody could fill that spot. Well, that's pretty much true of any companion, right? That that's their their function, but some fit that slot better than others. And some companions' personalities still come across, even though they're interchangeable. Mm-hmm. I never am confused about who Tegan is. I'm never sitting here wondering like what's going through her head, how she would react. We always kind of get that fiery side out of her. But Nyssa seems to be so placid and so calm and so just, <laughs> Again, if that was something that was played up, that her calmness was a, a boon, her calmness was something that could be used. You know, she was the one that stayed calm in, in tough situations. But yeah, it's not. You're right. JG, you're a lot more familiar with Nissa's portrayal in the audios, I believe, than I am. Do you feel she's used better there? Yeah, substantially better. It's one of the big sort of finishes early run of stories where they, they start to really redeem these kind of underserved characters. Nissa's one of the first ones who really kind of benefits from that. Mel is the other one earlier on as well. And they've done a really good job of being able to give Sarah Sutton something to do, which really, unsurprisingly, makes all the difference in the world. Because when you've got something to do, you can do it. I feel desperately sorry for her in terms of her TV portrayal, because I I think there is so much potential there. And Sarah Sutton is a good actor, you know? She can really deliver the goods when the moment calls for it. But yeah, she's given so little to do. And in a story like Time Flight, she's given, like, some... Well, I was going to say some meaty material. <laughs> some some ostensibly meaty material where, you know, like she's got a, quite a big role in this. She's meant to be the bridge between the Xerophim and the Doctor. She's got a lot going on. You know, Adric's just died. Uh, the Master's back. Like, there's so much there that Nyssa ought to be reacting to and none of it is written for her and it's not Sarah Sutton's fault you can't you can't blame her for not being able to act lines that aren't there and yeah, yeah. it's just <laughs> such a it's such a a waste and 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 I know Big Finish isn't directly comparable to the original show you know the scripts are uh you know obviously formulated in a different way there's been you know a long gap between uh, the the TV performance and the and the audio performance you know people change over time etc cetera, etc cetera. but Big Finish really have proven how good an actor Sarah Sutton is and continues to be and it just makes you ache all the more when you come across dross like this that just even when it's trying to give her something to do, just can't find anything remotely interesting to do with the character. It's just, yeah, like I said, she might be the most wasted companion in in all of Doctor Who. Yeah, I completely agree, especially in a story like this, because as Dalton pointed out, anyone could have been in that slot. Anyone could have been taken over by the Seraphim. And it doesn't really necessarily do much for her characterization when we could have had more reaction to the Master, but we don't. And we get a lot more of that in the audios, which I'm very happy about. But no, not in the actual quote-unquote canonical material, which luckily this isn't either, because the book is not canon. There are a few minor changes, but not all that many. If anything, Grimwade seems to be paring this down a bit, except for the Concord stuff. He's just much more interested in the damn plane. That's <laughs> like, okay, fine. Dalton, before we started recording, mm-hmm. you expressed surprise, because I kept it from you, that Tegan left at the end of the story. Yeah, I 
did not see that coming. Whereas I kind of had a feeling that the master was coming back. The end where Tegan walks away on her own. It's only like the last three or four pages that that happens. And I totally was expecting somehow she was going to end up back at the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it didn't happen. And it's kind of bittersweet in a way, because, you know, a lot of stories with Tegan have been about trying to get her back here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now that she's finally back at Heathrow, where she was trying to get in the first place before the master <laughs> shrunk down her aunt and everything. Now, yeah, <laughs> she, she's like, eh, I don't know if I want to be here. I don't know if this is for me. <laughs> yeah. And it's such an accidental leaving because it's the equivalent of saying, oh, I've got time before my flight and going off to the airport Arby's to get something to eat and then coming mm-hmm. back and finding that you've missed the departure. Yeah, It's not an accidental departure. The doctor clearly fucks off because he doesn't want to be around her anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep forgetting that uh, Gigi is not the biggest fan of uh, Tegan. But... <laughs> no, no, that's not true at all. I love Tegan. Tegan is like a top three companion for me, but the doctor is a real asshole in this. Like he, there's, no, there's no conversation. He just gets closes the door, dematerializes, and that is the end of the story. <laughs> you know, Which is fine. I actually really like that. I think that I think it is. Uh, I think Dalton, you said bittersweet. I I, I like that. I, th- I really I really do appreciate that approach to it. I think it's great. But the doctor still just fucks off. There's just no getting away from that. As as Jim has told us repeatedly, the fifth doctor is a bitch. Yes, <laughs> he's extremely bitchy. This is true. Something we also discussed before the recording is that what happens to Tegan has essentially already been spoiled for Dalton to some degree because he's watched the five doctors. I'm sorry, Dalton, I keep talking for you, but <laughs> you, you told me that you watched the five doctors and you were like, wait a minute, Tegan's in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you haven't seen Ark of Infinity. No. Mm-mm. What a treat. And the only reason I watched the five doctors is because on Brickbox it had showed up as its own special thing. This was three years ago at this point, probably early pandemic. I was like, yeah, five doctors. Cool. I think at that time we were still early mm-hmm. in the fourth doctor. So yeah. I was like, okay, the five doctors, I still have a ways to go. I'll probably forget this. And honestly, I forgot most of that story, but I did remember that Tegan was in it. Um, so I don't know how she's going to get back, but it is funny that, yeah, the doctor, whenever these things happen, he's, he's not, you know, they don't get in the TARDIS and he looks and says, all right, check. I have this person. I have this person. I have this person. We're ready to go. Has it ever happened that the doctor leaves someone behind somewhere where it wasn't good that you they were left behind? Accidentally? Susan, maybe? Susan, well, uh, she wanted to stay, though, right? Uh, I think that's ambiguous. But yeah. again, it's, it's the same pattern of behavior. Like, she's not given a choice. She just closes the door and, and, and leaves. So, yeah, that's uh, but, like, but, like, you know, like it's, a, it's bombed out London. It's not a great place to be, I would suggest. But, no. um, but most of the companions leave kind of on their own accord, or it's the doctor knows about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in what I'm remembering, you know, so yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think it's one of the few things that Grim Wade is trying to set up in this book. I mean, as much as he's trying to set up anything, because it's quite clear that he's just kind of banging it out. But he does give Tegan a little more inside her head. She's the point of view character basically for a lot of this which I appreciate, but not nearly enough still. So that ending with her leaving, or seeming to leave, does have that feel of, (laughs) there had to be some surprise in this book, right? Yeah. Because the whole bit with the Master, and I'm going to come back to the Master very briefly, this whole Mexican standoff that they have, and then it gets resolved with the master kind of being blocked from landing at Heathrow. We don't even get the master getting to wave his fist and say, curses, doctor, I'll get you. We don't get that at all. We just get Anthony going into the TARDIS and we don't see him again. 
at least not until the next time we see him, but not in this story. I mean, are you are you suggesting you want to see more of the Master in this story? Oh, hell no. no. <laughs> okay, just, just checking. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. In fact, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but this story probably would have been better if Khalid had been the villain throughout the whole thing and there'd never been a master in it. Now, that's kind of grading different levels of shit, but it would have been slightly more palatable shit if it had just been Khalid, because that probably would have pushed the plot in a different direction. Or just no no Khalid either. Just it's the Xerophim that have somehow made this time slip happen. Yeah. Yeah. And with no <laughs> other Time Lords involved, that could have been interesting. It mm. could have been interesting to have the Xerophim themselves being the ones who were throwing these images at Tegan and Nyssa. I doubt they could have gotten the actress who played Aunt Vanessa back, but that would have been something to throw at Tegan as well as Adric. Yeah, it could have been, it still would not have been a good story. That being said, and I hate to admit this, I do love the flight crew of Concord in this story. And probably not just because it's three gay actors playing these guys. <laughs> I, from think what that's, I think part of the thing, though, is that, is that, I mean, they are screamingly camp on screen. There's just oh. no... There's no getting away from that at all. But again, it's another way that this book is so flat because they don't come across as individual characters at all, I don't think, on, no. on the page. They're just like like Captain Urquhart and bloody bloody blah and sorry do do They're just interchangeable people that none of them have any kind of real characteristics or anything that kind of marks them out as individuals or just like other than their their rank it, it it's they are not compelling that's not the word they are weirdly watchable yes. <laughs> nothing's compelling in time flight they are weirdly watchable but it's only because it's kind of in a sort of you know I mean, Time Flight is kind of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 of the Peter Davison run. And, and you know, these screamingly camp gay men uh, who are try, trying very hard to look like proper pilots. God bless. It's lovely. But <laughs> <laughs> effective, not so much. At least they have presence. At least they have screen presence. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Whereas on the page, you don't have the performances. So you need something else to like make the characters function. And there's just nothing there. Same thing with the very appropriately named Professor Hader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a prick. His essential function is to be the hater in the entire plot, and then suddenly to come around when he realizes, oh, I could learn everything and then I'll die. Even there, the performance actually gives that character something. Not much, yeah. but something. He's nothing on the page except somebody who's just saying, oh, that can't be true. Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, that's silly. That's all he does. And he's there to be the sacrificial lamb for the Xerophon, and that's his only function. Because you don't want any of those three cute pilots to be killed off. <laughs> but it's just, oh, God. And you can't kill another companion so quickly. No, no, though this could have been a story where Nissa gets killed. Mm -hmm. But no, that wasn't going to happen because Davison and Sutton got along very well. Well, he gets along with Janet Fielding as well, but he has long said that he's better suited to Nissa. And in the audios, you can kind of see that. They click together quite well in a way that you don't often see them on screen doing. But not in this story because she's barely in it. She's mostly being possessed the whole time. Oh, goodness. We're going to hear about this one, aren't we? Oh. Yeah, probably. Well, since since I have mentioned that I had pretty much figured out that it was the Master early on, this story, in a lot of ways, felt like Castrovalva. Really? Well, just that everything's an illusion. Everything is something that's just being forced upon these people to visualize. The doctor doesn't remember Castrovalva necessarily, at least in my own headcanon, as we're prone to talk about lately. He was a fresh baby fifth doctor at that point, so <laughs> he doesn't remember that the master was forcing all of this upon them. But that was what 
made me say, yeah, this is the master. Yeah, this dummy dressed up like this is just the master. Because oh. it's it's almost exactly the same. <laughs> oh, God. So that means this season has come full circle? Oh, Lord. <sighs> Excellent work. Excellent work. Yeah, I know. I'm here all day. Yes. <laughs> Real quick. We were talking about the master's costume. And speaking mm-hmm. of Castro Valva, the costume in that is actually pretty convincing that you can't really tell that it's the master underneath that. Is this costume as effective or does it really look like him underneath it all? Hmm. JG? Uh, no, I mean, it doesn't look like him, but the costume is vast. I could be under it and you wouldn't be able to identify me. And I'm six foot five. It's, it's, (laughs) no, I mean, it it could be literally anyone in there. So in in the sense that it effectively disguises the master on screen. Yeah. I mean, it does fulfill that function. It's also a ghastly racist stereotype. So, I mean, how badly you want to, uh, Mm -hmm. excuse it for, I mean, it, it's a costume that does its job. That's, that's for sure. Yes. And I guess we'd better tell them the story about the Radio Times. They wanted to hide that Anthony Ainley was going to be part of it. Mm-hmm. So they, they, <laughs> they credited Khalid as, what was it, Leon Naite? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, they did a acronym. Anagram. Anagram, uh, anagram, yeah. anagram not acronym. Because <laughs> God only knows what Leon Nite would have ended up being. But yeah, they did a anagram of his name in the credits for both mm-hmm. the Radio Times and for the um, episode. And it's like, why? This isn't as clever as y'all think. This isn't clever at all. <laughs> this is just the master being... A cosplayer. Mm-hmm. For no apparent reason. This is some kinky sexual bullshit the master gets into when he's alone. It, uh, God, I just hate this story so fucking much. And the book doesn't do anything. Just whilst we're talking about Khalid, we've criticized this for being a terrible, awful stereotype. Which it is, on screen. It's, it's really, really bad. And it's quite the achievement that Peter Grimwade has managed to make it worse on the page. <laughs> it's just, I don't know how you do that, uh, but it's awful. But there's, it's another thing, it didn't stick with me from reading it back in the 80s, but it definitely stuck with me reading it for this podcast, which is that there's a line where he's bloated like the body of a drowned dog. Yes. And <laughs> where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, it's vivid in a way that almost nothing else in this book is, but then also not in a good way. Um, <laughs> it's all of the all of the on screen uh, on screen sorry all of the on page descriptions of Khalid are just terrible, and like the way that he also tries to write down his weird chanting as well oh. is just. It's so bad. I, one of them is wet ram. It's just like, what? It's stuck in my head too for reasons I imagine are rather more obvious. But um, it's just, I don't know, it's so bad. I genuinely am baffled as to how you could take something that bad on screen and actually manage to subtract from it. Yes. He does say Oriental at one point, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, Oriental and a Chinaman. And Chinaman. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, okay. Oh, God. Yeah, that seems to be the thing about this book, that as bad as Time Flight is on screen, this book is somehow worse. And I'm going to say something that, again, I have some trouble admitting to. Time Flight, if you're in the right mood for it, can be kind of fun to watch. That's why I described it as like MST3K. Because yeah, yeah, if you're in the right mood, you've had a few drinks, you've got a friend over or whatever. Like, yeah, you can, this is a really easy story to take the piss out of. It's not good in any any meaningful way. But yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah, and it's not so much that on the page, except when you get into Grimway doing things like using the word necromantic wrong or referring to something as the throbbing entrail. Or talking about how the master wants the TARDIS for penetration. And he climaxed in a manic falsetto. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, what are you suggesting? Well, I think we're suggesting that a very randy gay man wrote this book and that he was trying to entertain himself because he was just as bored by it as we were. 
Well, was, at least one person might have got some entertainment value out of this then. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, we are so good to hear about this because there's nothing... Well, I have said some positive things about it, but very few. Is there anything else we have to say about this book? <laughs> Fuck it. Fuck it forever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's not what you were looking for, is it? <laughs> well, it's what I was thinking, so it works. So. Oh, dear. I I'd be very sweary this episode. I do apologize, but I no. do feel that I had adequate inspiration for it. So That's fine, and so have I. I I've had one cup of coffee rather than my usual three. So I'm probably a little more, how does Jim put it, grumpy than usual? Mm. Yeah, so good thing I'm entertaining when I'm grumpy. So shall we go to Goodreads? Just one last thing. Oh, I yes, do not wish to believe, therefore I hallucinate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that well-known philosophical statement. Yes, I yes. liked that line. <laughs> and at one point he says that there's far more, or rather less, indeed less, to Kelly than meets the eye. It's like, you have no idea. He's a transformer. <laughs> Well, I would have enjoyed that better. <laughs> so, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured, when we get to an upcoming book or simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.16. What? Yeah, I know. And and it gets worse. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives this three stars and says this story would probably have been too ambitious at any time in the 1980s, but at the end of the season, when all the money had been spent, it stood no chance. Some of the special effects weren't just bad, they were laughable. The plasmaton costumes, for example, wouldn't allow the wearers to see, so they stayed still. Thankfully, in prose, there are no such limitations, and the production values are as high as the reader's imagination will allow them to be. And it's not a bad story. I particularly like what is essentially a throwaway scene with the hallucination of Adric, which was included to allow Matthew Waterhouse's name to appear in the cast list for the story in the Radio Times just before Adric's death in Earthshock aired to maintain the surprise. The one aspect I'm not so keen on is the Master's insistence on staying in disguise when he's alone and doesn't need to. It is, of course, for the benefit of the audience, well, benefit is kind of a strong word there, Dave, who were supposed to be surprised at the unveiling. Perhaps the master just likes playing dress-up. God, does he ever. Also in our Goodreads group, Michael gives it no rating. Good for you, Michael. And says, nostalgically, time flight... Actually, he spells it time fight, which I think is uh, quite telling. Time flight holds a special place in my heart as the first Doctor Who story I watched on a warm summer's evening. Putting aside sentiment... I can see that the story was overly ambitious for the era and for its place and season. There's a theme here, you notice. The budget really had been stretched to its breaking point by this point, but given the unlimited budgetary constraints of my imagination, I hoped for a bit more from the target book when I finally got around to it as part of the audio range. Too bad Prebeard Grimwade wasn't feeling as ambitious as I hoped he would. Grimwade seems to follow the Terence Dix of the Tom Baker era model and just translates the script to page with a few descriptions of items, sets, and characters thrown in for good measure. The story of a Concord being stolen down a time corridor in order to help out the Master's latest nefarious scheme doesn't even come close to making one lick more sense on the printed page. It really does make one yearn for the days of Roger Delgado as the Master when the villain's schemes felt like they had a bit more planning behind them. And finally, Jack gives it two stars and says, At the start of this book, I was a little disappointed that the death of Adric from the end of the previous story was only briefly mentioned. I know this is also the case in the TV episode, but I'd hope that in a written medium we might hear a little more of what the characters' thoughts and feelings were through narration, but it's just as fleeting a scene as on television. The TV production did suffer from a low budget, 
to things like characters half-seeing through illusions sound more impressive in this version than they appear on screen, and the blocky rock people with superimposed soap bubbles from the original, that's what it is, Dalton, it's superimposed soap bubbles, are now nightmarish necromantic tornado beings. Whilst these aspects are greatly improved, one of the main issues I had with the original serial remains unaltered, which is the Master's Disguise being an exaggerated racial stereotype. That was your main issue. Beyond that, the Concord and airport aspects are a really good idea and make the story stand out from any other in Doctor Who, well, except for the faceless ones. But the rest of the plot just didn't hold my attention, even in book form. <sighs> so Dalton... Out of five stars, what would you give this? I don't want to be completely evil and, and go super low. But That's I'll, not evil. It's it is for me. I don't know. I still have like a <laughs> an issue with with grading any of these things low. I have Jim's ear or Jim's voice in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> I I'll, I'll give this a two, which is generous. <laughs> yeah, the story for me, doesn't have much redeeming quality to it. It's an emotional letdown after Earthshock, and the whole plot just doesn't make any sense to me, really. Yeah, I don't know. I just, this book left a bad taste in my mouth the whole time. Just like, this is so pointless and stupid and so useless. Like, the season should have ended with Earthshock. And then add a year off to think about Adric and not have to worry about this stupidity. So, two stars. <laughs> okay. And JG? Minus 17,428. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm being kind. <laughs> 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 oh, all right, all right. Um, oh, I can't. I mean, I can't give it zero, right? Um, yes, you can. I mean, yeah, that has it, is, been it is tempting. Oh, I don't know. I'll give it one because I'm sober. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's so hard to find any redeeming features. You know, there's always this theory about, and, you know, some of the Goodreads people mentioned it, like, you know, if only it had a bit of money thrown at it, but it was end of season. You know, that's the whole point of a book is that you don't have to worry about your budget. And this is just so flat. There's nothing here which inspires or amuses or entertains. It's actively offensive in places. Uh, oh, you know, fuck it. Zero. I'm giving it nothing. This is a terrible book and I never, <laughs> ever want to have to think about it again. <laughs> and as for me, and I'm so glad you said that, JG, because I was afraid I was going to be the only one falling into the Trey Corte camp. Because he's been the only guest who's ever given a zero to books on this podcast. And yes. give it my first and only zero, because, my God, I hate this book actively to the point that I wasn't looking forward to this. The only thing I was looking forward to was discussing it with y'all. But as for the actual reading of it, it was a chore. And it wasn't even anticipatory. I, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to give this a shot because I've read Planet of Fire and I kind of like that book. And I've read Modern Undead and yeah, So I don't think I've ever read this book before. And I went ahead and read it thinking, okay, I'm going to give this a fair shot. There's no point in giving it a fair shot because Peter Grimwade has no interest in making his own story better. Usually when someone adapts their story for the target range, they either do a phenomenal job or they do an okay job. This isn't even an okay job. This, as you put it, JG, is negative integers. He somehow makes it worse. So, zero. Well, thank you both. <laughs> Yes, thanks. <laughs> yes, and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time, this time more than probably any other time. Next time, we welcome JG back to discuss the novelization of the next season opener, Arc of Infinity, which I assume is going to be a um, better experience. In the meantime, oh, before I say that, JG, where do we find your podcast? 
Oh, uh, you can find uh, Talking Trek to You on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the all the usual podcasty places. So uh, yeah, please give us a listen. Myself and Kev, my co-host, going through the original series of Star Trek episode by episode. He's never seen it before. I've seen it less. And I will be guesting on that podcast very soon to discuss sure Devil will. in the Dark, which I'm very, very much, much looking forward to. Yes, yeah, a much better story than this one. Well, that's not exactly high praise. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.